Well, if I were to bring up the conversation with you this morning about investments, I think inevitably at some point in that conversation, the name Warren Buffett might be brought up. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Warren Buffett has been regarded as one of the greatest investors in recent years. In fact, this last Tuesday, I don't know what you were doing, but Warren Buffett's stakehold in a video game made him a whopping $409 million. $409 million made in one day. How was your Tuesday? Was it like that? And while the world has seen its fair share of wise, smart stewards of finances, like your Warren Buffetts of the world, it's also seen its opposite. A quick Google search will pull up a laundry list of celebrities who had squandered millions of dollars just as quick as they earned it. And one specific celebrity that fascinates me is MC Hammer. Everybody here remember MC Hammer, the, uh, the grandmaster of parachute pants? Anybody here wear parachute pants in the 90s, to be honest? Right? This is a time of confession right here. You can bring that before the Lord. Well, MC Hammer, um, he, he made parachutes, parachute pants popular, and there are some styles that when they fade, you think they'll never come back. And that would be one of them in, in my book. But this last Christmas, my wife and I were trying to think of a gift to get, at my time, my 13-year-old niece. Good morning, boo. And we didn't know what to get a 13-year-old, and so we asked their parents for some advice. And one of the things that made the list was parachute pants. And, and I literally thought, there's no way. I was like, baby, are you serious? So we went to the mall. We went to like the coolest, hippest stores we could find, and sure enough, all of them had parachute pants. Like they're totally back, and she's rocking them. Well, MC Hammer was not only the grandmaster of parachute pants, but he was also the grandmaster of overspending. Take a look at what he was able to squander in only a span of six years. He kept a 200-person staff. And that staff totaled payments of around $500,000 a month. A 200-person staff because hammer pants don't wash themselves, right? He dropped $30 million on a 40,000-foot mansion, square-foot mansion that he had built. He had 19 thoroughbred racehorses. If you're not familiar with racehorses, they are expensive, each of them costing millions of dollars. The Lamborghini and, and other extravagant cars that he had weren't enough. He had a private jet, two helicopters, and a stretch limo because 90s. And one of the most fascinating expenses was $70 million towards a golden uh, tub and a golden toilet. I don't get it, but he did. And all of this left him bankrupt, in debt of $13 million in only six years. You might say that MC Hammer's spending habits were too legit. <laughs> too legit to quit. Some of you Gen Xers are in the room, I can hear you laughing right now. 
And we might look at his spending habits and think, wow, what a waste. Like, what an absolute waste. But then at the end of the day, we just kind of get over it and say, well, that was his prerogative. He, he did with his money what he wanted to do. And that's true. However, let me flip this on you and ask that if the money that was squandered over the course of just six years was yours, that you gave to MC to steward and to handle, and it was spent in this way, might that change your attitude about this at all? I imagine our emotions, our anger might turn if our own money was mishandled this way. This morning, we're continuing our journey through the parables. If you've been with us this summer, we've been walking through the parables of Christ, these truths that are thrown along the way. And this morning, we'll be looking at the parable of the talents, which takes us to Matthew chapter 25. And this parable is clustered with other similar, similar parables like it that all carry these two major themes within them, watchfulness and stewardship. That as believers in Christ, we are to be both watchful, waiting our Lord's return, anticipating it, and we are also to be good and faithful stewards with what God has given us. So with that, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 30. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one next to you, and the verses should be on the screen behind me. Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his, man, his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 record for us what is regarded as the Olivet Discourse. Maybe you have that title in your Bible in this section. The Olivet Discourse is one of five teaching discourses recorded in Matthew. Matthew is not so much of a chronological writer, writing in order of a timeline, as he is a groups writer, taking similar teachings and putting them together. We don't have time this morning to go through all five discourses, but the first discourse we're probably all very familiar with, and that's the teaching discourse called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus Christ's first public teaching. And the nature of this discourse is that it is for the public. It is for the masses. It's for believers and unbelievers, disciples and people who are not disciples. But this teaching that's before us, this parable of the talents that's clustered with a few other parables like it in the Olivet Discourse are not public teachings. They're not public parables. They're private. They're in the company of the 12 disciples. It's Jesus' last teaching discourse before his betrayal which means that this parable of the talents this morning that we're looking at is a parable for the church. It's a parable for you and for I. And its purpose is for you and I to evaluate how faithful are we as stewards of what God has given us in our life. How faithful are we as Christians The two parables just before the parable of the talents begin with some contrast. In fact, every all four parables in the Olivet Discourse have to do with a compare and contrast. The first, at the end of chapter 24, contrasts a wise servant and a wicked servant. The next parable contrasts five wise and watchful virgins and five foolish virgins. And he says at the end of this parable that we are to be watchful, therefore. And then Jesus moves immediately into the parable of the talents, our parable this morning. And as the previous parable says that we are to be watchful, our parable this morning says that we are to be working. As servants of Christ, we are to be working in this age. Before we dive deeper into it, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork and explain a couple of things. The man going on a journey in this story is Christ. Seth is on vacation for the next couple of weeks. Uh, The man going on a journey is not Seth. Uh, He is not the master, and Melanie said amen. (laughs) The man in the story is Christ, and he's essentially speaking of his ascension that will happen after his resurrection, in which he will be away for a long time. The servants in this story are you and I. And we are called in this age of the church for the last 2,000 years to be working. But here's the most interesting thing about this passage that we must take to heart is that in all of these parables, especially in the one to follow with judgment between the sheep and the goats, some servants 
prove themselves to be faithful and true servants, while others are exposed as false servants. Those who associate with the church, their name is on the roll call, but their heart is still not given to Christ. And so the most important thing for us to ask this morning is, which type of servant are we? Will we be found to be faithful stewards? Or in the end, will we be found to be false professors, false servants? One quick way of uh, of groundwork is understanding what talent is in this parable. In the parable, it represents money, but it's also supposed to represent something else, and we'll get into that. But a, a talent in the ancient days was a unit of measurement. And so in order to calculate how much money we're talking about that was given to these servants, we, we need to know a couple of things. One thing we need to know is the material of the currency. Are we talking gold, silver, copper? And so many theologians and scholars have attempted to come up with a ballpark estimate of what this might look like today. And if you study this, you're going to get all sorts of answers. But there's one unanimous truth, is that all agree that even just one talent is a fortune, is a tremendous amount of money to steward. In fact, the most conservative of of measuring out what this might look like today, believe that it's somewhere around $600,000 to a million. Now, who of us would think that that is small change? One resource, John MacArthur's church in California, Grace Church, believes that one talent could be the equivalent of 20 years of wages. So two talents would be the equivalent of 40 years wages, and five talents would be the equivalent of 100 years of wages. And so you can take this. Some are given more. Some are given less. But all are given much. And that's true of us today. Some are given more to steward. Some are given less to steward. But all of us here are given much. And so a talent is supposed to represent something. What, that, what might that mean for us today? J.C. Ryle says that talents are the equivalent to our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church our advantages as being possessors of the Bible, having the word of God before us, that makes us incredibly wealthy. All of these things are talents, and we are expected to treat them as loans from God to be stewarded. The title of the sermon this morning is Faithful Stewards and False Servants, and I want to take the remainder of the time to give four contrasts between the faithful stewards and those who are found to be false servants. So contrast number one is time well spent and time wasted. Verse 16 says that the first servant, he went at once and traded. Verse 18 says that the wicked servant went and dug and hid his master's 
money. So the faithful servant in this story not only viewed the talents that were given him by the master as a resource to be stewarded, but he also saw the time given him, the time allotted to him as a valuable commodity that must be stewarded well. In other words, this servant wasn't sitting around and thinking, I'll serve God when I finish college. I'll serve God at a later time in my life when I get my career settled, when I get married, when I have a family, when I get my family settled, when I get my kids out of the house, when I retire. The servant wasn't putting off the time given him in order to serve God, but he viewed every moment as a means of stewarding what God had given him. He had an urgency in how he lived his life, which reminds me of the words of Christ in John 9, 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. It reminds me of the psalmist in Psalm 90, 12, where he says, teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. So you and I have all been given days, hours, minutes, seconds of our life, time given us as a loan in which we are to serve the Lord. As we look at the great commandment in Scripture, it is to serve the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Apostle Paul was a man that you could look at and say, that man had an urgency in the way he lived his life. He lays it all out in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the, his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And we might look at Paul's words and say, well, Paul, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you were given direct revelations from the Lord. In fact, Christ appeared to you on the road to Damascus. And then after that, you talk about all these insights and revelations into the faith, into the spirit world. So it makes sense that you would live this way. But I don't have that. We have more than we think. Consider the words of Christ in Matthew 13, 17. For truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. First Peter chapter 1 talks about the grace given us being so amazing that angels, and think about myriads of angels longing to look in and understand the grace given us in Christ longing to understand our relationship with the Father as being one with him. Christ also, I'm sorry, Paul also tells us in Ephesians 5.16 that we are to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. In 2004, I remember the hit song being released by Tim McGraw, Live Like You Were Dying. Anybody remember that one? few of you, not so many. We're in Magnolia. This is country town. Come on. 
Uh, and, and I'll be transparent and honest, man, I am an emotional person. Like, I cry in my car as I'm listening to music. I get all hyped up and emotional. And so when I heard that song as a teenager, I was like crying. I'm like, I'm going to live like I'm dying, man. I'm going I'm to go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing. and I'm going to do all this. I'm going to live passionately. Maybe not skydiving. My wife would do that. I, I don't think I'll do that. I loved that song, but the problem with it is that it's mostly focused on pursuing earthly passions. However, I still think there's a great principle found in it. It concludes with this thought, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. And the reality for us as Christians is that we know we're dying. We know death is certain. It is coming. We know we don't know when our last breath may be. And so, if you knew that you only had days to live, would your faith look any different? The false servant, by contrast, viewed time as his own and not his master's. And unlike MC Hammer, he didn't lose anything. Interestingly enough, he hit it, and you could say that he said, like MC, you can't touch this, but he didn't lose anything. He didn't live recklessly. He could bring up that excuse, right? I didn't squander, I didn't live recklessly like those people. Nothing gained, but after all, nothing lost. But that wasn't the task. The task given him was to be fruitful and to maximize the time. Listen, you don't have to live recklessly in order to squander and waste time. Most of us, all we need is an iPhone and a couch, amen? Like, in two weeks, on August 1st, is the MLB trade deadline. I'll be transparent, all right? In two weeks. For the last two and a half months, I have been re reading report after report and YouTube video after YouTube video. It's the time of season where you find out who are contenders and who's a pretender. Who's a buyer and who's a seller? And for the last eight years, hallelujah, the Astros have been buyers. Who are we going to get? And I know that come August 1st, it's going to look completely different than all the stories that have been out. You can't predict this madness. And so the hours that might add up to days that I've squandered are convicting. What things distract you? As we saw in our summer cultural apologetic study that Chris mentioned earlier, there is so much chaos in our world. There is so much hurt, so much pain, so much confusion. Our foster care agencies, they're overflowing. If we take anything out of this study, we must understand that there is a load of work for us to do. And there is no time to waste. No time to squander. There's so much that we could be doing and should be doing as believers. I'll conclude this point with Philippians 1.22 where Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Does it mean that for you with regards to your time? The second contrast is between faith gripping risk and self-preservation. Faith-gripping risk and self-preservation.
preservation. The faithful servants made wise and calculated risks. Listen, there's always a risk associated with investments, right? There's always a risk. There's no guarantee that your money's safe. Now, there are some investments that have a higher risk and some investments have a lower risk, but every investment has a risk. And by risk in this situation, I don't mean that they're driving down I-45 and see the Texas lotto is up to X amount of money and think, I'm gonna jump on that. That's not the type of risk that we're talking about. In fact, servant here in this parable is the Greek word doulos. And doulos doesn't always mean the lowest ranking slave. In fact, sometimes slaves, after their debt was paid, would choose to stay under this master because it was good work. And so this word is oftentimes translated employees. These men could have been craftsmen, artists, artisans, gifted agriculturalists, good with numbers, accountants. They had good minds for business like so many of you in this room. And it says that to each of them was given according to their ability, meaning the ability that they had determined how much was given to them. And so this makes me think that Christianity is not about safety. Christianity is not about comfortable living. It's about risk. It's about gutsy, bold, faith-gripping risk. Because it can feel like a risky thing to share the gospel with a neighbor or a family member to go across the street and start a conversation because God's put that family in your sphere. It can feel like a risky thing to talk to a coworker or a boss or manager about convictions that you're having in a tough situation. It can feel risky to open up your home to the broken and to the lost. It can feel like a risky thing to sell everything you own and move across the world to Kenya to serve the Lord. Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith tells the story of men and women who chose and dared to live risky lives. And they demonstrated that their life, that their hope was not in this world. They dared to live risky. But where's the motivation in this? That's great, live risky. Where's the motivation? The motivation is in this is that there is no cost that you and I can pay for the sake of Christ that will not be returned back to us a thousandfold in the resurrection. There is nothing that we can lose for Christ that will not be returned back to us a thousandfold and an eternal reward in the resurrection. There is nothing lost if we lay it down for Christ. As we see this joyful master returns the talent back to his servants to use and to steward. So question, what risky dream has God put on your heart? What's that one thing on your mind that has stayed there that you'd love to see happen? I'd love to do this, but the risk involved just kind of stifles you. 
and you remain actionless. The faithful take risks, and this means that we cannot play it safe. Now, I don't mean go and run off and do something crazy without first maybe talking to your elders or, or talking to your community group, talking to brothers and sisters in the faith. There's wisdom in a council of elders, but we're still called to live risky nonetheless. And by contrast, the false servant untrustingly plays it safe in this parable. And he's condemned for fearing the master and being afraid to risk his life for the master's glory. Too concerned with self. We all have our, our favorite movies, um, those movies that are so close to our heart that the moment we hear uh, that someone hasn't seen it, that it's like, drop everything, we gotta watch this right now, right? And for me, one of my movies like that is the movie Braveheart. And I got to share this experience uh, with my wife earlier this year, and thankfully, uh, she loved it, despite its uh, bloodiness. William Wallace, the, the main character in Braveheart, dared to live risky for the sake of freedom, and at the end of his life, just before his execution, he says some of my favorite words. He says, every man dies. Not every man really lives. Every man dies. Not every man truly lives. Self-preservation is antithetical to the gospel. Christ said it this way in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. With regards to risk this week, I couldn't help but remember uh, the story of the Moravian brothers, these two German brothers in 1732, after giving their lives to the Lord, felt called by God to minister to African slaves in the island of St. Thomas. And they were on their way trying to make this happen, and along the way they were eventually told, it's not going to happen. We're not going to allow you to do that. And rather than shrinking back and saying, Oh well, like, I guess we missed that one. Their next thought was that the only logical thing to do now is to sell ourselves as slaves and go and minister to the people God has called us to minister to. And they did. They sold themselves to a slave owner, boarded a ship, and as the boat is leaving the dock, their family is there on the shore weeping, crying, confused. What's going to happen? Knowing they'll never see them again. And one of these men steps up and yells to the shoreline to their family and says, Shall not the lamb receive the reward of his suffering? Shall not the lamb receive the reward of his suffering in our lives? God may not call you overseas. He might. But what risks are you taking for him today? Because if your faith in Christ has risked you nothing overall, 
I would encourage you to maybe evaluate whether your faith is genuine or not. Contrast number three, the faithful take responsibility and the false servants make an excuse. Master, you've delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more and two talents and I've made two talents more. These servants understood and had an account for what had been entrusted to them. So question, have you ever taken inventory? Like, I, I think it would be a great practice for us to, to go in the secret place, be alone with God and ask, God, what are all the things that you've given me? What are all the talents, the gifts that you've given me to steward with my life? And write them down exhaustively. And then from there, pray, God, what, what do you want me to do with this? What would faithful stewardship look like with X, Y, Z? And rejoice in this, that he will give you grace to be faithful with all that he's entrusted to you. He will require nothing more, but he will require nothing less. And there's a freeing truth in that that the master does not hold us accountable, responsible for what others have done, what others are doing, or what others have the capacity or capability of doing. He will hold you accountable for you, and this truth will liberate us from a very real crippling experience of comparison, right? We all fall victim into comparison. Like we might be this two talented guy or, or the one talented guy because you can steward one talent well. It's just in this case, this guy didn't. But you're a one talent guy, you're a two talent person and you're, you're going along, man. You're, you're content in the Lord. You're working to the glory of his name. Your heart is rejoicing until one day you get a glimpse of what Mr. Five Talent is doing over there. He's doing that? He's involved with this? He's bearing all this fruit. Like, I don't, I don't have any of that. I can't do that. And you come back to your one or two talent business, and all of a sudden, it's not enough. Anxiety clicks. Am I doing enough? Am I worth anything? Is this doing anything? Men, you might struggle to think, he's got a better job than I do. He makes more money than I do. He's got a bigger house than mine. He's taking his wife on their third vacation this year, and I'm saving for one? And it might have to be Austin or Galveston again? <laughs> Ladies, see, she's managing the home, but, but I'm over here in the workplace. Or she's in the workplace and and I'm at home, what should I be doing? What has God called you to do? She's doing this and that, and she's serving over here, and she's reading these books, and she's starting this ministry. She's got social media influence. Her house is always immaculate. Her kids are always these sweet little ducks in a row, and my kids have hair, uh, gum in their hair. And you're telling me that after all this, she's got time to get to the gym? What? I fall victim to this, and, and comparison will rob you of the joy that God has called 
you to be. I love old dead guys. I love reformers. I love Puritans, man. I want all their books. But when I start to compare myself to them, anxiety flips. Like John Calvin Institute's 27 years old. What have I done with my life? You read about what these men are doing and the ripple effects of their ministry, and I think, I'll never be that. I don't have that mind. I don't have that gift. I'll never be what they are. My hero in the faith, Jonathan Edwards, like would study 13 hours a day, and I can't sit still for 13 minutes. John MacArthur, Al Mohler, like modern-day theologians, guzzle books left and right. Like they just put their hand on a book and they just absorb it. Like you guys remember Short Circuit? Anybody here seen that movie? Johnny number five, man, robot, picks up a book, 800 pages, wow, that was great. And I'm over here reading the same paragraph for the fifth time, just trying to understand this, looking up words. The anxiety comes in. Until my wife lovingly sees me spiraling out of control and reminds me, God's not called you to be those men. He's called you to be you, to steward what he's given you. And those words are for all of us this morning. God has not called you to be responsible for stewarding what he's given others. He's called you to be faithful with what he's given you. Our common goal in life is faithfulness. Faithfulness to what's been given us. And that's liberating and freeing. Never despise what God has given you. Praise God for five talented men. May he raise them up and may we use them, but do not despise what he's given you because you are no less significant to the work of the kingdom. The false, on the other hand, took no responsibility, but gave this sort of rebuke to the master. In verses 24 and 25, he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. The excuse of this servant revealed a very telling truth here. And that is that he never truly knew the master. By his own confession, he saw the master as a hard man. Does that fit how any of you might view Jesus as a hard man? Christianity, hard rules, impossible to keep. You think, I can affirm the truth of Scripture. I can affirm that Christ is real, but living this out is impossible. So, oh well. If you're there, and I've ministered to some who are, if you are there, I would submit to you that you have not understood the grace and joy of the Master. You have not understood the grace of Christ offered to you because you can't live this out. That's the point. That's why we're all here. 
There's no one righteous. There's no one rocking and knocking this thing out the park. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have failures. We all fail to keep his word. That's the point. That's why he came to suffer and to die on our behalf because of our failure. And in this, he gives us his righteousness. It's not our own. It's his. So the point is, you cannot do this on your own. The answer isn't whatever. Since I can't live up to this, I guess I'll just do what I want on my own time. It's, I can't do this. So I'm going to desperately fall on the one who's done it for me. And that's Christ. But, as we see in this parable, if, if you choose to stay there and not trust in Christ, your excuse will not get you out of being accountable. It's not sufficient. He says to him, if you knew this about me, which is false anyway, if you knew this about me, then why didn't you act accordingly? You knew I was going to hold you accountable you knew that nothing was not an option, so the very least you could have done, the least risk you could have made was just put the money in the bank. Not hide it. So your own excuse calls you out. The wicked servant, in the end, cared nothing about the master's glory. And it was revealed in his lack of action. This type of neglect is spiritual suicide. It's suicidal in nature to neglect in this way. This is what Hebrews 2.3 says. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the last contrast is between the faithful's stewardship led to reward, and the false servant's neglect led to judgment. So let's look at the phrase where it says, he came up and brought. The one with the five talents came up and brought. The word here for brought is very interesting because it's repeatedly used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I counted 60 times in the book of Leviticus this word is used to talk about bringing a sacrifice. Not a talent, but a sacrifice. This vocabulary is unique because it essentially shows us that Mr. Five Talent and Mr. Two, two Talent viewed their talent as a means of worship. They viewed the stewardship given them as an opportunity, opportunity to worship the master. I'm going to use this to bring glory to my Lord. It's the same word used for offered in Hebrews 9, 14. In the book of Hebrews, it's used 18 times. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ offered up himself. These servants offered up not the talents, but themselves which is exactly what Romans 12, 1 talks about. 
Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So how different might our lives look? How different might our stewardship look if we viewed all that we did as a possible act of worship, a means and a way to glorify God, our families, our marriages, our finances, our children, all that we handle can be done as an act of worship. For believers, this is the reality. All that we do, it's not just the songs that we sang moments ago. It's not just the song that we'll sing in a moment. Worship moves so much farther beyond that. But it's expressed in everything that we do as image bearers. I imagine that these servants, these faithful servants, that with every profit made along the way, Every dollar made, they're seeing the account grow, that they had daydreams about showing this to their master, daydreaming, he's going to come home, I can't wait to show him. In the same way, a child might eagerly anticipate their father's return home from work. Look at my progress, daddy. I can ride my bike. Look at the pictures I've painted, the letters I wrote. Christ's servants serve out of joy because they know the joyful master. It's a reality, Psalm 16, reality that in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy, amen. But we also must remember that our master is a joyful master. And he invites us to his wedding feast Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Isaiah 62.5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Believer, do you live as if the father rejoices, delights in you? How might your tomorrow look like if you walk in that reality that as a son, as a daughter, he delights in you, in Christ in you? The false servants who lived his days in the church was ultimately found out in this parable. The common grace he shared with everyone was now being stripped of him since he had no heart to repent. Verses 28 through 30, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mentioned the Puritans earlier. I don't have that mind, so I'll let Matthew Henry say it for me. With regards to these verses, he says their state is outer darkness. Darkness is uncomfortable and frightful. Anyone turn all the lights off in the house and have to run through it? It was one of the plagues of Egypt. 
In hell there are chains of darkness. In the darkness no man can work, which is a fitting punishment for a slothful servant. It is outer darkness, out from the light of heaven, out from the joy of their Lord, into which the faithful servants were admitted, out from the feast. There is weeping, which bespeaks great sorrow, and gnashing of teeth, which bespeaks great vexation and indignation, and this will be the portion of the slothful servants. Our takeaway this morning, in light of all of this, is that we are all unprofitable servants apart from the grace of God given us in Christ Jesus. We are all unprofitable servants. Only by abiding in Christ will we ever bear lasting fruit. If any of us are found to be faithful, we recognize that it is only because of the grace given us by God. That's why scripture says, what do you have that you did not receive? It is a gift. It is a grace. And so may we never boast in the things that we're doing, but recognize it is a grace of God in us, working through us, proving our genuine faith. This is why Christ says in Luke 17, 10, so you also, when you have done everything you are told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. In close, there are two servants exposed here. One viewed him as a hard man, not worthy of reaping the Lord's praise. If that's you, consider that he upholds your breath today. He upholds your days He has offered you the ultimate sacrifice of himself. And there's no escape should you neglect so great a salvation. And time is fleeting, and you must give an account. And here's the amazing grace this morning, is that if that is you, then praise God that you have time still to repent. It is a mercy to hear these words this morning because you don't want to hear them when it's too late. And for the believers, for those who will be found faithful, if you've trusted in Christ, to all of us, he has given us talents. What are we doing with them? To every saint that is faithful, the master will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. These are the words that we long to hear. Let's pray.